Asia Pacific Currents. News and labour issues from the Asia Pacific region. We strongly condemn the, the police that arrest uh, the protesters. Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock on Community Radio 3CR. All groups of the world should unite to fight this greedy capitalist. Brought to you by Australia Asia Worker Links. Good morning and welcome to Asia Pacific Currents on this Saturday, the 28th of November. Uh, I'm Giselle Hanna. And I'm Pierre Morrow, and the year is almost finishing. We've only got a few more shows. So it's uh, fantastic to be back with you. And of course, uh, Asia Pacific Currents, uh, as you've just heard of our interview, Troy is brought to you every week by Australia Asia Worker Links on 3CR Radio. And of course, if you're going to get in contact with us, Giselle. That's right. You can find us on the web, all the w's.aawl.org.au. We're on Facebook and Twitter. So look us up on those social media platforms. I do want to say, um, though, Pierre, today is a special day, a very personal special day. We we try not to share things from our personal lives and so on. But do you know what day it is today? Oh, yes, it's your birthday. It is, isn't it? Happy birthday, Grasshopper. I didn't even have to prompt you or anything, Pierre. No, no, no. I'm still keeping that dementia at bay. But, you know, it's looking like... most of us will have spent um, our birthdays in lockdown, although uh, for those lucky ones of us at the towards the end of the year, we might be able to celebrate with small gatherings of friends. So I have no complaints, Pierre. That's good. That's good. And I hope you're, you're going to enjoy it. And uh, as always, on birthday, you get that extra bit of wisdom. Oh, I see. Very good. (laughs) Well, look, in the second part of today's program, we go back to a a topic that we had covered a couple of weeks ago, which is how war shapes healthcare in Syria and the region, being the Middle Eastern region. So this time, we're going to hear from Ula Abara, and she's a consultant in infectious diseases um, at General Internal Medicine at Imperial College um, in London. She's also an honorary research fellow at Imperial College. Now, I know I've just said a whole bunch of qualifications, but she's actually an activist as well. She co-chairs the Syria Public Health Network, um, which is a group that brings together academics, NGOs, policymakers and international organisations to highlight um and influence policies relevant to public health for Syrian people, and she herself is a Syrian. So we're going to look at this topic again, which is how war shapes healthcare in Syria and the region in the context of war, um, occupation forces, etc. Um, so that will be the second part of the show. But first up, of very, course. Very important. Well, I will say another a bit of, uh, of trivia. Um, and, of course, uh, a lot of our listeners will know that this week uh, Diego Maradona has died, one of the great legends of uh, football around the world. And I did see a picture, and this is where it links in to what you've just said, that every, everywhere around the world people are painting uh, pictures of uh, Maradona. And I saw a photo of uh, these young people painting uh, the picture of Maradona and a, um, a, and a mourning sign for him on the rubbles of buildings in Idlib province in northeastern Syria. Wow. So even there, 
uh, there is a connection. But yes, so let's um, let's start with our mini news stories. I'll I'll go first. Uh, we go to South Korea. Where unfortunately this uh, Tuesday, three workers were killed when an explosion and fire occurred at a blast furnace at POSCO's Gwanyang Steelworks in South Korea. This accident is unfortunately only the latest in a series of fatal explosions and incidents at this plant over the last year where a number of other workers were killed or injured. The company has so far refused to explain the cause of the explosion and has refused entry to health and safety officers of the KM. KMWU, which is the uh, Korean Metal Workers Union, to do a safety check at the plant. Now, importantly, these deaths have occurred at a time when the National Assembly is debating changes to the Trade Union and Labor Relations uh, Adjustment Act, which these changes, if passed, would block trade unions' access to workplaces, even if they had been invited by union members inside that workplace. Unions are holding a series of protest actions to demand that these amendments be dropped. And of course, we know that once you take out um, unions and labour and workers' organisations from a workplace, health and safety um, literally goes down the plug hole. And moving now to the Philippines, where the unions there gear up for a new campaign. The Filipino Trade Union Federation, Kilosong Mayo Uno, has launched a nationwide campaign to protest the Duterte administration's failure to uphold and respect fundamental human and trade union rights. Their slogans, such as junk terror law, hands off trade unions in the Philippines, Unionism is not terrorism. Stop the attacks. These demands are a reflection of the militarised and criminal actions of the government and its paramilitary squads that have killed thousands in the last few years. The KMU is inviting labour activists all around the world to participate and mark November 30 as a Global Day of Action on Trade Union and Human Rights in the Philippines. And of course, that's uh, this coming Monday. We now go to Turkey, where last week the government of President Recep Erdogan launched a new wave of repression against government opponents and Kurdish activists. The operation was in the southeastern province of Diyarbakir, where authorities announced detention warrants for around 100 people most of whom were associated with the Democratic Society Congress, or DTK. The DTK is a human rights group that advocates for greater rights for Turkey's long-suppressed Kurds. The activists targeted included politicians, doctors, lawyers, journalists, and civil society activists. This uh, new wave of, of arrests have sparked widespread opposition both within Turkey and abroad. Um, analysts believe that this latest crackdown is a result of an internal power struggle within the ruling coalition as economic conditions in Turkey continue to deteriorate. And in Thailand, there have been more protests against the government there. The mass protest movement in Thailand against a military-led government and the monarchy shows no sign of let up with more, pro more mass protests in the last few weeks in the capital, Bangkok.
Two demonstrations were outside the country's parliament as it was debating motions around reforming around reform for all aspects of the country's constitution. At the same time that these motions were rejected, the police attacked the demonstrations on both nights. Another major demonstration occurred this week outside the country's main bank to demand the king relinquish control of royal funds worth tens of billions of dollars. In response, the government has once again stepped up its response by reviving the kingdom's fierce Les Majeste law that can jail people for decades for the slightest criticism of the royal family. This week, the police issued Les Majestes summonses to 15 leading organisers of the protest movement. It's very worrying what's, uh, what's happening there in, in, in Thailand. Um, but uh, our last two um, news items are slightly pieces of good news, um, where we go to Iran first, where um, in previous weeks we brought you uh, news about the uh, half-tapper sugarcane workers and arrests there. But the uh, four of the arrested half-tapper sugarcane workers, Ibrahim Abazi Monjezi, Yusuf Bahamani, Ahmed Mumbaini and Masoud Haifari, were released on bail early this month, while just a few days ago, another group of 15 labour activists at the half-tapper factory who had been prevented by managers and security forces from entering their workplace have now won their right to return to the factory. These victories were only achieved by the continued actions of fellow workers and of international solidarity activists. These workers have uh, also stated that notwithstanding the victimization they have experienced, they will continue the struggle for workers' rights at the half tupper sugarcane factory. So well done, comrades. And our final story is from Palestine, where a prisoner has finally been released. We've been commenting on the situation for Maher al-Akras, a Palestinian prisoner, on a protracted hunger strike against his administrative detention over the last few weeks, as his condition has fast deteriorated. We can now report that in mid-November, Al-Akras announced that he was ending his fast after 103 days as he had won his fight for freedom. Israeli authorities agreed that he would be freed on November 26, with Al-Akras spending the remaining days in hospital recuperating. Al-Akras is just one of around 350 Palestinians who are languishing in Israeli jails for an indefinite period of time under the guise of administrative detention. Um, yep, and so, of course, uh, he should be free by now. And um, that reminds me, on November 26th, there was also uh, a huge general strike uh, in India, so um, a couple of days ago. So we'll bring you news on, on, on that um, next week. And that does bring us to the end of news from around the region. We're going to go to some community announcements and then our feature story for the morning. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Tune in to Imagining Disability Justice, 3CR's International Day of People with Disability broadcast on 3rd of December. From 7am to 7pm, we're making space for disabled visionaries to discuss the pandemic year that was, abolition and building a better future. For details, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2020. I want to drop food, not bomb. 
When I was new to Melbourne, I found a footnote bombs fly on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Community Radio 3CR. This is Asia Pacific Currents with Pierre and Giselle. And our story today is uh, an excerpt or an extract from a public meeting that was held by the the Alliance of Middle East and North African Socialists. And the topic of the discussion of their panel discussion was how war shapes healthcare in Syria and the region. So today we're going to hear from Ula Abara, who is the co-chair of the Syrian Public Health Network, and that's a group which brings together academics, NGOs, policymakers and international organisations to highlight and influence policies in relation to the public health of Syrians. Firstly, thank you very much for asking me to speak uh, this evening. I'm in London, so it's evening, so I don't know where our other panellists are today. Um, And also, it's been such a privilege to listen to the preceding speakers. it's wonderful to speak after Khaloud because she has made so many important points and I'd like to draw some of these out. And I think the very first most poignant point is we can now no longer talk about Syria. So Syria in itself as a country doesn't exist. It, Syria is fragmented. Uh, as Khaloud said, there's more than one health system functioning within it. Uh, Different parts of Syria are under different um, political powers. So you've got the government areas, the northeast, the northwest areas under Turkish control. And the important thing about healthcare when we discuss this fragmented, politicized um, health systems functioning within the country um, is that each have their own way of governing, leading different strategies and also different ways of running the health facilities within uh, these different health systems, within these areas, different adaptations and innovations, and also different access to international and humanitarian aid. And this is something that's very poignant at this point in time, because the areas in the northeast and northwest of Syria in particular uh, relied very much on cross-border aid. So in 2014, the the first UN Security Resolution, um, uh, UN Security Council Resolution on cross-border aid uh, was released. And this allowed four border crossings for health and humanitarian aid to enter Syria. And the reason for that is if humanitarian aid was given through government controlled areas, so through Damascus, um, and it was to reach cross line, this very much and very often did not happen. Uh, and amenitaries were effectively cut off from international aid and certainly didn't have the right provisions that they needed. Um, at this second, we are on tenterhooks because there are two border crossings in Northwest Syria where three to four million people rely on this cross-border aid. Um, and they're now being subject to discussions in the UN Security Council um, in terms of being renewed. 
the importance of this is now when we think across the country, um, we see different levels of destruction across the country. Um, we've spoken about the weaponization of healthcare. And what we mean by this term is the uh, deliberate, multidimensional and systematic attacks on different aspects of healthcare. And that's everything from the health facilities that we've heard, but also on healthcare workers themselves, interrupting the delivery of medical aid. Um, and that was particularly poignant for areas that were under, under siege. So in Syria, um, in the last few years, up to two to three million people um, had been under siege or in hard to reach areas, and they were starved of medical care with very few um, health workers working in these areas. In terms of the attacks on health facil facilities across Syria, there have been hundreds. Uh, and I think it's important to say that all parties in this conflict have been culpable. So everyone from uh, the government of Syria to, um, to Russia, um, other government of Syria allies, opposition forces, Daesh. But it's also important to note that more than 90% of these attacks have occurred um, at the hands of the government of Syria and its allies. We've begun to speak a little bit about Syrian healthcare workers, and this is so fundamental. So I'm a practicing physician uh, in the United Kingdom, um, and I am grateful every single day that I can go to work. I am not threatened. Uh, I don't need to worry about resources. Um, I can report cases, um, whereas this is simply not a fact uh, in Syria. So very early in the Syrian conflict, um, so if we remember to March 2011 is when uh, the protests first started and by and large for the first few months they were uh, peaceful. By the middle of 2012 they have become increasingly violent, uh, mainly because they were being put down violently. And so in July 2012 um, a counter-terrorism law was passed which criminalised the provision of healthcare to civilians and opposition um, areas. What this meant as a health worker was that if I was treating someone who was considered to be uh, opposing to the, to the government, I could be put in prison. And in fact, thousands of Syrian healthcare workers remain now in prison uh, because of this law and because of the um, um, other sort of persecutions of these Syrian healthcare workers um, throughout this conflict. So my family's from Homs and our home is actually opposite the National Hospital in Syria. And I remember this hospital for many, many visits um, in my childhood. What's important about this hospital and many other hospitals across Syria is they became a weapon in this violent protracted conflict. So very early in the conflict, we knew that health workers were responsible for the torture um, or even the, the threats and disappearances um, of, um, um, of uh, uh, patients that had come in for treatment. And it goes back to something very important that Khulud was saying about neutrality. So neutrality in this conflict, I would suggest, comes from a Western perspective of how we deliver humanitarian aid. As a health worker in the UK, I can be neutral and impartial in the care that I deliver to patients. However, we've certainly not seen that in um, the way that healthcare in Syria has been attacked recurrently and very deliberately uh, across the country. In terms of the fragmented health system, a point that I would like to draw out at this, um, at this point, which is very pertinent, relates to the COVID-19 pandemic. 
So if you look at the whole of Syria, there's been differential support um, in terms of uh, PPE, so personal protective equipment, um, testing machines, uh, testing equipment, um, the reinforcement of health facilities to be able to deal with cases. So the WHO has provided um, training and humanitarian aid and the testing machines, so the PCR machines, uh, to the government of Syria, but most of those have gone to areas under government control. So, for example, none have gone to the northeast, which is the Kurdish-controlled areas. Uh, they have, however, received a couple of PCR machines from um, some of the Kurdish areas, and that's how they're able to provide some testing for that population. In the northwest of the country, so a population of about 4 million people, there is one PCR testing machine uh, which has a maximum of 100 per day. And if you can imagine the number of patients that might present with possible symptoms of COVID-19, um, that's certainly not enough. And it speaks of the lack of infrastructure that we have now as a result of um, the protracted conflict. This is even more poignant now. So in government controlled areas and in the northeast or northeast, there's been almost 400 cases um, of COVID-19 officially reported. In the northwest of Syria, until Thursday, there had been no cases. But the first case was reported um, in a doctor in one of the border hospitals between Turkey and Syria uh, on Thursday. Should COVID-19 spread among this population, it's going to be catastrophic. Uh, because um, many of the people within that area are internally displaced. Many are still living in tents um, and have themselves been displaced many more than once, uh, particularly after the escalation of violence which occurred in the northwest uh, from December 2019 onwards. So what does all of this mean uh, more, more internationally? What's happened in Syria is very repeated um, and systematic undermining of principles of medical neutrality. And there's been consistent violations of international humanitarian law. So these principles have been codified since the late 1800s uh, and became more formally enshrined in 1949. And they are there to ensure that all hostile parties do not use uh, health and humanitarian uh, workers as part of their attacks on civilian populations. In Syria, and of course, as we've heard in many other, uh, many other countries, and that includes Yemen, that includes Sudan, Iraq, Libya, uh, even the DRC, so the um, Democratic Republic of Congo and other countries uh, where there are complex and prolonged conflicts, um, health, health workers have been threatened um, and have been um, um, attacked in the line of their work. The last thing I'm going to say regards the, the way that war has changed the structure and organization of healthcare delivery across Syria, uh, but also in some of the Syrian refugee hosting countries. So within Syria, about half of Syria's population has been displaced. So pre-war, that was a population of 22 million. Um, now there are 6.7 million internally displaced people across Syria, predominantly in the Northwest and the Northeast. Um, there are more than 5.5, so the official UNHCR figures are 5.5 million refugees, but of course there are many more. The majority of them are in Lebanon, uh, Turkey, Jordan, and some further afield. So for example, there are a few hundred thousand refugees uh, in Germany. The important thing, and many of you will know that Lebanon um, 
now as a country facing massive economic collapse. So even for Lebanese populations, uh, whether they are middle class, whether they are already poor and suffering, um, the situation for them is even more catastrophic. For Syrians, where more than 80% of Syrians live in poverty, um, the economic collapse in countries such as Lebanon um, is even more catastrophic um, and can push them even further into deprivation. And that includes health healthcare, of course, but also the other social determinants that have a direct influence um, on the health of these populations. The important thing about these Syrian refugee hosting countries is many of them already had health systems that were strained um, within themselves, let alone taking in hundreds of thousands, if not 3.8 million refugees as Turkey has done. I'm going to end by saying a few more words about Syrian healthcare workers. Something which many people do not realize is for Syrian health workers who are refugees in Lebanon and Jordan, they do not have the right to work. In Turkey, it's different and there are uh, provisions which allow partial registration for Syrian health workers and for Syrians who take on Turkish residency and nationality, they are able to work and work in the Turkish health system. And that can be beneficial uh, not only for the Syrian refugee populations, but also for the normal Turkish population. And of course, that has difficulties in terms of the retention of Syrian health workers, um, but also in frustrations, things relating to their education and development and their ability to go back to being health workers should they be able to return to Syria. And of course, the last point relating to this um, is that we know that health workers who've been displaced to countries very nearby to where they come from, uh, and this is often a deliberate decision on their part, they're far more likely to go back to their country of origin. And that's so important uh, in Syria because our health system in Syria, uh, or rather our health systems, is going to need a great deal of effort um, to be able to provide healthcare for the population in the coming years. Many Syrian healthcare workers, so more than three or 4,000 Syrian health workers, so Syrian doctors, have registered in Germany in the last few years. And there's every chance that many of those, especially when they, um, they have families and children and are established in their profession in Germany, may not return uh, to support Syria's health system. Of course, we would hope that they would. And that was Ula Abara uh, speaking at, on a panel discussion organised by the Alliance of Middle East and North African Socialists about how war shapes healthcare in Syria and the region. And Pierre, that brings us to the end of the program. That's right. That's right. And uh, uh, listeners, we hope that you've enjoyed uh, this uh, news roundup of the labour movement, labour struggles in the Asia-Pacific uh, regions. And so thank you for listening wherever you are in the world. We'll be back next uh, week. Keep uh, safe and keep fighting. That's all from me, Pierre Morrow. Yes, it is all from me, Giselle Hannah. I do just want to quickly say um, we've got two more shows um, this year before we take a break um, and return next year. So I do just want to... Um, as has been the case for most of 2020, extend a very, very big thank you to our comrades, uh, the staff at 3CR who have supported all of us programmers, but also Asia Pacific Currents to continue to get the show to air. And normally 
um, all, all of the programmers in the 3CR community have an opportunity at the end of the year to thank the staff directly at our annual Christmas party. And it doesn't look like that's going to be the case this year. So I just want to keep, keep, keep telling the staff how amazing they are and to thank them from the bottom of our hearts. And we'll do that for the next two shows. So thank you. That's all for Asia Pacific Currents today.